Coming up this week on the Smitty and Mitty Show. After welcoming his baby girl into this world last week, Mitty makes his return to the show, and we chat with 2002 Stanley Cup champion Jason Williams. The Smitty and Mitty Show, right now. And now... Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Start your engines! 90% of the time, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. The show that's got everyone saying... You're so dumb, for real. With Smitty. What you just said is one of the most idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. And Mitty. I've been in this business 15 years. What's your name? you. That's my name. (laughs) This is the Smitty Mini Show. Smitty Mini Show coming back to you on podcast form for another week here. Thank you to our sponsors, Goldline Curling, the choice of champions, and Dave Middleton at Sunlight Financial in King Carden. Life's brighter under the sun. Mr. Middleton back in studio with me, joining me on the podcast this week. Good to have you back, my friend. Good to have you back. Smitty Mini Show, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Check us out there. The Smitty Mini Show on YouTube. There's still nothing up there. So, I mean, there are still no interviews up there. Eventually, there will be, <laughs> but we are working on the studio which is why there's nothing up there. But really, we're not working on the studio. Because if you hear that, there's a wee bit of an echo. So we are right up on top of this today. There, there's nothing on the walls in here? No. It's You're just, just surrounded by four blank gray walls? The technical and audio geniuses we are, we didn't think, hey, if we put up walls, make it firm, and then paint them, we might get a wee bit of an echo. We didn't so think about that. We didn't think about that. And now we're back in studio, and there is a bit of an echo. Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit, and so I got to get really on top of it and talk directly into the microphone, which I think makes my voice sound sexy. It's so I might kind just of like keep doing it. ASMR type thing, you know, like uh, trying to be all sexy, seductive. What's Is ASMR? It working? Uh, audio sexual muting something. Wouldn't that be ASMR? Yeah, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is to be honest with you. That, that was obvious by your explanation of what it was. I know you don't know what it was. Smitty Mitty Show. Coming up on the show today, we're going to talk to Jason Williams, 2002 Stanley Cup champion with the Detroit Red Wings. He'll join us a little bit later on. We're also going to talk about the Blue Jays coming home July 30th. We'll see the Blue Jays back in Toronto. How much is it going to cost you to get a ticket to that game? We'll discuss that and other things. And we're also going to dive back into the Conor McGregor incident, which happened last week. We didn't talk about it on the podcast because you weren't here, but we now know more information. So we'll talk about that coming up on the show. What an amazing podcast you did without me. Just fantastic. You really went in depth into sports. Like, I appreciate how much you gave your opinion being by yourself. It just shows how much I carry the show. It was show. good. It, it was, was just good. me. It's me carrying the show. Is, is what it, You still talked as much as you normally do in an episode. There's just no banter. Yeah, That's it was just it was me. Problem. I fill time. You, you couldn't fill time on your own, though. I don't think you could. Oh, I could. We'll, Easily. we'll try it out one day, but I don't think you could. You, you don't think I could talk? For 40 minutes. Yeah, but you rely on, on the banter a little bit. You rely on me to take you to the destinations. There's take a lot you of time. To the different topics. You just direct me if where I told, I'm going. If I told you that we were doing a 40 minute show on the Blue Jays, McGregor, and our guest, we would never get to the guest or McGregor because you would talk about the Blue Jays for 40 minutes. Well, that just shows that I you could need, do. I could easily do it myself. Yeah, but just, you need the I, internal clock to get you where you're all going. All you do is stop me when I'm going way too long. And you know what? Every good show needs that guy. And that's you. But you by yourself. <laughs> How do you stop yourself? I, you, you, you don't have banter to stop yourself. No. I, I When I was at school doing radio, the longest you would talk for is like two minutes. Right? So right. now... 
But that's not what we're doing. It's a completely different medium. I'm learning. You're learning as you go. Well, you need to learn faster because you're dragging you need to me learn behind. Faster. Why don't you come in here and fix this room with me? Fix this studio. I've offered several times, but now I'm busy. I'm busy yeah, now. Yeah. How's that going? How's that going? Birth of your daughter. Now you're a, a dad. Uh, yeah. Beautiful little baby girl. Uh, Blakely Wilda Kelly Middleton. Six pounds, three ounces. Six pounds, three ounces. We, uh, we were in and out of the hospital for last week just with some jaundice stuff and apparently some mm. blood stuff. I don't know. I don't know. Fancy word. All I know, I was yeah. sleeping. Hyperbilirubinism. What? Hyperbilirubinism. Hyperbilly? Billy. Oh. So the bilirubin is the is the chemical that comes I, out of their, yeah, yeah. their blood cells. I thought cells you said belly. I was like, I get a hyperbelly when it's like I, close I to dinner time. I hyperbelly. <laughs> My yeah. belly is always hypered. And I'm thinking Reuben. Like, mm, hyperbelly for oh, some Reuben. I love me a nice oh, Reuben sandwich. I'm kicking the papers all around. <laughs> hyperbelly for Reuben. I love me a nice Reuben sandwich. You know, like, you remember if she going, had a hyperbelly for Reuben. That sounds like your daughter. You remember? You remember going to like the '80s diners in Hanover? Yeah. Have you ever been to the '80s I diner actually in did. Hanover? I went there after a game. Delicious, delicious. And you sit down, and they got like they got the Monte Cristo sandwich. They got the Reuben. Mm-hmm. They got the the clubhouse. Like they got all these classic sandwiches. The Reuben's the only way to go. They had a fantastic Reuben, homemade sauerkraut, like just rye bread. Didn't have the Reuben. Corn. Oh, so good. Good. Yeah. So good. I'll have to but try it out next milkshake. time I'm there. Oh well, it's closed. Oh yeah, it's wow. it's uh, Queens Bush Gardens now. Mm. Queens Queens Bush Queens restaurant. Bush. Queens Bush restaurant. That's nice. Yeah, it sounds yeah, appealing. Didn't think about that. Somebody yeah, didn't. Yeah, that sounds very appealing. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Coming up on the show today, Jason Williams will join us, and we'll actually uh, we'll talk to him right now. 2002 Stanley Cup champion with the Detroit Red Wings, joined the club a year earlier, didn't get a whole lot of games in, and he won the Stanley Cup, and uh, he got to carry that thing around the ice. So we'll talk to him now. Jason, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's go right back to the start of your career playing at the OHL in Peterborough. I mean, Peterborough is in the middle of really nowhere. So go- going to Peterborough, what, what's that feeling you get knowing that you're going to have to go, you know, not to one of the biggest, especially being from this area. I mean, you got the Knights. So now that you have to go to Peterborough, what, what, what goes through your mind when you find out that's where you're going? Uh, you know, for me, it, it was just a, I was just excited to get an opportunity um, you know, I, I didn't know a whole lot about the city itself. I knew that the, the organization had a, a very good reputation and, uh, I just felt that, you know, this was a spot that, uh, you know, that they were going to give me a chance to, to play. And, uh, I was excited for that. Um, you know, moving away from home at 16 was very tough. Uh, I remember sitting on my, my front lawn at my parents' house, uh, like it was yesterday. And, uh, you know, I was saying goodbye to some of my buddies and, uh, you know, it was tough. It was hard, you know, cause I, I was going to a strange city, not knowing anyone and, uh, going to a new team where I really didn't know anybody as well. So you just, you, you try to go in and you try to fit in as, as quick as you can. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the 20 guys, 23 guys that you have on that roster, you become pretty close with because those are the only guys that you have a whole lot of conversations with, you know, you go to school and, and kind of people shy away from you because, you know, you play hockey and, you know, they maybe think that, uh, you know, you're cocky or, you know, you, you think that you're better than certain people. And then some people just don't want to give you the time of day, but then you're going to meet some really good people as well. And they become, you know, long-term friends that you might have for a lifetime. So, it was definitely strange and it was uh, not knowing, you know, what to expect, but 
uh, I was just happy that I was going to play hockey and, um, you know, going to be able to do something that I absolutely love to do. And that was one of my goals was to, to play uh, in the junior levels at, uh, at 16. Now, a lot of people, when they go and they have to move away for junior hockey, you'll hear about guys who say they learned a whole lot more than they would have if they stayed close to home or they could live with mom and dad, drive to the rink. When you had to move and to Peterborough, a place that you've never been to, I'm assuming you've never been to before, certainly never lived there. Was it a thing that you thought, I'm going to have to learn, I'm going to have to grow up, and I'm going to have to like become a man real quick here in junior hockey? Absolutely. Um, you know, like you said, grow up and become a man and learn how to take care of yourself, really. Like, um, you know, you move in with a family, you don't know what they're going to be like. Uh, the first family that I moved in with, it just, we weren't, we just didn't see eye to eye. I, I went to the GM and I said, listen, things aren't really working out. I'm not comfortable here. I could, I move somewhere else. And they were, you know, hands down, no problem. Where would you like to go? Do you have a spot? We can find your spot. So they were very, very supportive and, and, uh, in helping me out. But, um, you know, it was nothing against that family. We just, we didn't kind of jive together type thing. And it was just kind of a little bit awkward. And I wanted to feel, you know, that I could be myself and I could be a little bit more, you know, lackadaisical and stuff like that, where I felt like I was a little uptight all the time with the one family. So um, I moved to the, that new house and it was literally like a block over. And I went to the house. I asked them, I said, listen, one of the guys at the beginning of training camp was living there. Uh, we had like a little bit of a pool party there and kind of just kind of hung out by the pool. And, um, I was like, this would be a great spot. The, the people were retired. They were great, nice people seemed to be like, you know, where somewhere I felt like I could, you know, go live there and it would be kind of living like, uh, you know, like I was at home. So I asked them, they had no problem with it. And, uh, I still keep in touch with them today. Like they're great people. Um, you know, and, you know, for that, the four years that I was there, it was a, a great spot, had a roommate, I think in my third or fourth year, uh, Jeff McCurcher, who's a, a scout for the St. Louis Blues now. I see him from time to time and, uh, you know, it's great running into some of these old, you know, teammates and things like that. And he was one of my roommates and it was great to, I think, just get into a, a housing situation where, you know, I could be myself, I could grow up, but like you said, you, you have to learn how to do things on your own sometimes. And I think it's a, it's a big eye opener for someone who's 16 and, you know, it, it was, uh, it did help me mature a little bit quicker and, um, but I, I'm, I'm glad I did it. I have no regrets, uh, you know, moving away at 16, even though it was tough, but my family did a, you know, an amazing job like coming to see me every Thursday um my dad worked at Ford for 35 years and you know I think they missed two games in four years two home games in four years whether it was a snowstorm or whatever they were there and that really helped me just to be able to at least see them once a week um and then they would you know try to get to the weekend games here and there and stuff like that as well but you know every home game they were there I knew I could look up into the stands and I could see my my mom and my dad, and then sometimes my brother would be there as well. So, um, you know, it was great to have that family support. It really helped make that transition uh, run a lot smoother. 
That's such an interesting and amazing point. I don't think we give billet families the 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 support or the the acknowledgement yeah. that they deserve because you know they're not just taking one kid on usually either this is year after year where they're taking on the worst of kids the 16 year olds right like this like they deserve way more credit than we actually give them and a lot of people when you talk to ex players they say you know I still go back and visit my billets you know I'll make a point to go up there once a year I I still call them I still text them they were there in my first NHL game like they they do become your family because they're helping you through something that is that is so strange and and new to you at such a young age too yeah absolutely you said it, it was you know bang on right there just no one really seemed to give them a, 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 you know, you don't hear about them as, as much as we probably should talk about them. And, um, you know, there's some good ones, there's some bad ones, but majority of them are all in it for the right reasons. And they're just there to help support your career and be the best, you know, kind of co-parent that they can be. And, um, you know, they're not just providing you with some food and a place to, you know, lay your head at night. You know, like sometimes I would have conversations and talk about hockey or talk about school or talk about life, things like that. Like you, you need to, as a player, I feel is, is to engage yourself with the family. You can't just be in in your room the entire time. Uh, You know, one of the, like the place where I stayed, they had their grandson who was 15 at the time. We hung out all the time. We had a great interest in music. He loved to, Napster was the big thing. I know I'm aging myself right now, but (laughs) Napster was the big thing then. And he used to make CDs and everybody's probably like, CDs, what are CDs? (laughs) But he would make CDs for everyone at school and he'd have like a big, huge binder where you could basically go through, select whatever songs you wanted. He would make the CD for you at home and he would make a little bit of money on it. And, you know, we were you know, I'll get this song, get this song, get that song. But I engaged myself with, you know, not just the, the, the family, but like everybody, like, and, you know, I, I think that if you kind of be like that person where you're, you're so shy, you don't want to say too much and you've got to engage, you've got to get yourself out there and, and, and make yourself feel like you're part of a family. And I think it makes that transition a little bit easier, but the players that kind of just sit in their room and, you know, sit on their phones the entire time and, you know, watch TikTok videos and, and do this and do that. You're not going to, it's going to be really boring. You got to get out there. You got to get yourself involved in maybe the community or, you know, go out, hang out with teammates and things like that. So it was, it was definitely a transition, but I, I, I really enjoyed it and uh, I wouldn't have changed it for the world. Yeah, that's such a true story. Everyone knows somebody who is illegally pirating mu- music, right? <laughs> somebody made you CDs. It was always someone. CDs, DVDs. I think I still have a couple of those. Oh, I heard somewhere. Do. They yeah. don't play in my van though. I'm pretty upset. I tried. <laughs> they don't play in there. Uh, but this isn't. This is, might sound mean. I don't mean it to be mean in any way. But we've talked to NHL players before, and the question that always comes up is. You know, when you got drafted, the big, the feeling of getting drafted, wasn't it just amazing? And, and those stories, and now we have the complete opposite where just, I'm assuming the disappointment and the letdown of not getting drafted, not knowing where you're going to go and not knowing eventually you're going to win a Stanley cup. I mean, if you knew that at the time, I'm sure you would have been happy, but like, tell me about the, the opposite of the joy, the disappointment of, you know, not of being an undrafted player. Yeah. Well, the, the year that would have been my draft year, um, the uh, Peter Pete's always wanted the players at the high school to get involved in like intramural sports. Um, just 
like I said, so that we don't seem like we're an outcast. And uh, so we played, you know, intramural volleyball. We played intramural, you know, basketball and things like that. So I, being the competitive person that I am, uh, I was big growing up, like grade seven, grade eight. That's all I did was play basketball. I could, I never practiced hockey. I played basketball every single day until the, I couldn't see the ball anymore. And I went to Peterborough. We got involved in this intramural. Well, one of the, I think it was like some of the players from the senior team from the school basketball team were playing in this intramural kind of thing going on. And then obviously a couple of the guys from our team, we put a team together. We went in, we're playing. I'm taking it somewhat serious because I'm a competitive guy and I go up for a shot. I come down on the guy's foot and I roll my ankle and I tore ligaments in my ankle. So I missed, I think it was like just like five weeks, six weeks in my draft year. So the billet father that was, uh, you know, comes to the hospital and he's in tears because he's like, this might ruin your opportunity to get drafted. And I'm like, no, no, it'd be fine. I'll be fine. It's just a little injury. It'd be good. You know? So I finish out my year. I don't get drafted, you know? Yeah. I'm very disappointed, but you know, I, I didn't have the numbers that I wanted to have that year. And I was like, well, you know, I could still get drafted next year. Who, who knows the following year, um, lead my team in points, had a pretty solid season. I think had 26 some odd goals or something like that. So I had a, a, a fairly good year. I think I made the all-star team and still didn't get drafted. And that's when the NHL were going big. So my billet uh, father, again, he basically was talking to a Buffalo scout he couldn't even write a report on me because I was under six foot. I was 5'11". You know, I'm not like 5'8 or 5'6". I was 5'11". He couldn't write a report and give a report to Buffalo because I was under six foot. And I was like, this makes no sense. Like, there's like these guys that are 6'1", six, 6'2", six, that don't even have remotely the numbers that I have and not even remotely the same type of caliber that I am. And they're getting like rated in the draft and, you know, things like that. And I was just like, wow, this just is so weird. So I go through the fall of that next year, go through the draft again, not picked. And so I'm thinking, well, like, you know, oh, well, like there's nothing I can do about it. And, you know, you see all your other peers getting drafted, getting recognized. And to me, I felt you put me on the ice with that player and I'll show you who's going to be the better player. And I will make, and I will prove you wrong that you made a wrong decision by selecting that player. I don't care if you select him in the first round. You put me against that guy. I will outcompete him, and nothing's going to stop me from doing it. So I kind of felt like I got a little bit cheated. But to me, you know, I had a, an older brother who kind of been through situations similar to this, and he was like, "You can't, you can't just fold the tent on it. You just got to keep working through it." It's adversity. It's going to make you stronger. You just got to battle through. So that's what I did. I took that approach and just kind of nose to the ground, just kind of kept my mouth shut and just work, 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 work. And I felt that if someone would give me a chance, I would prove to them that I could do this. 
And so I finished my fourth year in junior, still didn't get drafted, led my team for, with points again for the second year in a row. And I think I might've been nominated for the best defensive forward. We were always good in Peterborough to have a team that would make the playoffs, but it just shows how much, um, how like the importance of winning gives opportunities to players. And this is what like, for people that are listening, it's not about your stats. No one cares about your stats. No one cares how many goals you score. It doesn't matter. If you are on a winning team, you will get more opportunities and more jobs that way because you're a winner and you're labeled as a winner. So when I would go to Peterborough, we had a team that would make the playoffs, but we'd get like four or five games tops and we were out in the first round. And then, so that was it. So I was, I able, I was able to kind of, get into Detroit as a walk-on and did I think I was making that team? Not a chance, not a chance that I think I was going to make the team, but I felt that I had an opportunity because in their draft previous years, they didn't have a, any centermen and they didn't have right wingers. So I was like being a right-handed centerman that I could play both positions. I'm not just petitioning for like one spot. Like I can play center. And I can play wing. So that's kind of two spots. And then you've got four lines. So I have, you know, some, some room to kind of, you know, make an, a, an impression and maybe something happened or, you know, who, who knows what's going to happen. But I go to rookie camp, have a good rookie camp, have a good main camp. And then before exhibitions uh, season started, they, they offered me a contract, an entry-level deal. And I got my foot in the door. And then it was, you know, kind of, you know, just kind of kept riding the roller coaster after that. So, um, you know, very fortunate to, to be in an organization with uh, some older players that were Hall of Fame players that I was able to learn from early on in my career. And I think it definitely helped me uh, throughout my career, you know, and, and now, you know, trying to help out with other players and passing on those messages that I learned uh, from those types of guys, you know, most of them were hall of famers. So hopefully, you know, some of the things that I can pass on to some of these players now will help them and, you know, have them, they can have like a career similar to mine or even better. Now you talk about just getting your foot in the door and, and how someone just needed to give you that opportunity to prove that you can play the game. And it was Detroit, like you said, uh, signing as an undrafted free agent in 2000, uh, playing a couple of years in the minors in Cincinnati and Grand Rapids, and then finally making it up to the NHL. We ask guys all the time what it was like to finally step on that ice under those bright lights for the first time. Did it mean something a little extra to you knowing that you were undrafted? knowing that you just proved to them that I can play with these guys? Yeah, definitely. Like everybody doubted me. Everybody, I was too small. I, I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't fast enough or I wasn't, uh, I would never make it, you know? So when I did get that first game, like it was very nerve wracking. You know, I remember like it was yesterday where it was just, it was, a, uh, I couldn't sleep for my pregame nap. Uh, you know, all these different things that like they're just so much emotion kind of going through your head. And then when you get on that ice, you just play the game. You know, you get your first couple shifts in, your, your feet get kind of a little bit wet. And then now it's now you just kind of you relax and you kind of play your game. But yeah, like just to prove to the people like and I know it was only my first game. So I really haven't proven anything. yet. 
Like it's just one game. But to even just to get that one game for being undrafted, I was just kind of being like, I told you I'd do it. And, you know, now that people are sitting there going, geez, like he actually did it. Like he actually played a game. So um, it was a big relief for me. Uh, I think it was a, a relief for my parents and, and, and my brother, my family and things like that, just to kind of see me put that jersey on and, and go out and just play and, and have fun. Uh, and it was a great, great experience. I remember we did pregame skate and Darren McCarty and uh, who was it? Darren McCarty and maybe Malpy or Draper. They knew I was from London. So they knew I had probably quite a bit of people coming to the game. And uh, so I don't know, uh, some people will know this, but some people won't, but each player gets two tickets, two free tickets. And then the rest of the tickets, we always have to pay for. So I had about 15, probably 20 people coming to the game. Obviously that number adds up when you haven't been in the NHL for a very long time. (laughs) So I'm going, okay. And those guys were like, listen, you need tickets. We'll get those tickets for you for tonight and stuff like that. So that was, you know, something that you go to a younger team. That's not going to happen. These older guys, these veteran guys understood the situation that I was in and being close to home, they knew that like, you know, for them to reach out and kind of come to me and say, Hey, listen, like here, we'll help you out tonight here. Here's our, here's our tickets. Here's our tickets. So I had, you know, maybe 10 tickets and then I was able to buy a couple other ones and that was fine. And that was enough you know, for, for what I needed to cover and stuff like that. But, uh, no, it was, it was a great experience. And then just to, to, you know, to finally get on the ice and to to be out there with, you know, to these, with these superstars and stuff like that, it was high, you know, it was just like a dream that you never just would wish that was going to ever go away. It was never going to stop. You just wanted to continue to sleep the entire time. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun and, and, uh, it was a great experience. Yeah, from uh, MLB guys I've talked to at least, uh, I know that you know your your major league bonus goes away really quick between tickets and rookie dinners, <laughs> and you're done. You're, you're you're in the red pretty much the first time you're in the you're in the show. Um, we're going quick. We we talked before the show, Noah and I, and we think you're the third guy that technically has won the Stanley Cup that we've talked to. But I mean, we've we've had a like. A kind GM. of a G, an assistant GM and a coach. So you're the first one that, that made a difference in the game and I got to lift it over your head. So, you know, you won the Stanley Cup, I believe technically the second year you were in the NHL, uh, the first longer year you were there. I mean, tell me about the feeling as almost a rookie to be lifting Lord Stanley's cup over your head. Your lifelong dream has come true. That there was oh, like, uh, it was just such a relief uh for again just kind of like thinking back and and reflecting on the people that said I would never make it um you know I got to share that experience my parents were at the game my brother was at the game and uh you know just to share that experience with them was was great because they have been you know great supporters of me throughout my entire career and um you know for my dad like I remember giving him a hug and him breaking down like on the ice. And you, like, you see the TJ Oshies of the, you know, Washington capitals with his dad having Alzheimer's and, and like, he's saying like, Hey, you're, you're never going to forget this. And he probably like, you know, I know he's, he's passed on now, but 
um, you know, that's something that you don't forget. Like it's, it's, uh, such a relief, um, you know, to be part of a team like that, that was put together. Like I remember that summer, uh, Ken Holland announcing, Oh, we signed Dominic Hassett. We signed Brett Hall. We signed Luke Robitaille. I'm going like, how am I going to play? And there's no chance that we just signed three hall of famers. Like I just see myself going further and further down the totem pole. So, um, but it was also a Olympic year. So, you know, playing for Scotty Bowman, you know, being able to learn from him and uh, the way he kind of managed his bench and managed all those egos uh, to be able to get these guys their ice time, get these guys their goals that they wanted to achieve and things like that and keep everybody happy, but to continue the, the team winning. That's, that's hard to do. Dave Lewis basically had the same team the following year. The only thing that changed was maybe a defenseman. We, we brought in Darian Hatcher and Curtis Joseph and Hasek retired. And we got beat over by Calgary in the second round. So it just goes to show you can't just buy a team and put it all together and think, okay, they're the highest paid. We had the biggest salary. There was no cap at the time. So we, our team had the most salary, but it was just, you, you can't just put a team together and think it's just expected to win because it doesn't work like that all the time. So, but, you know, just to win was a great, great feeling. Uh, best feeling that uh, obviously I ever had in my career. Um, but the thing is, is it's hard. It's it, going through that whole process. Um, you know, it was, it was difficult. You know, the ups and downs that you go through, uh, just it's, it's like a roller coaster ride. You have to have a short memory in playoffs. And then I never got back like remotely close ever again. And I'm thinking this is, like you said, it was kind of my first year full, like not full year, but like where I played, I think it was 25 regular season games. And then I played nine in the, in the playoffs. Like I never came close ever again. And I thought, geez, this is fun. This, this team's going to win on a consistent basis. And like, we're gonna, you know, if I play here for four or five years, I could win, you know, easily three more cups and never came close again. And then, you know, things start to happen and, and things like that. And, you know, I get go, I get dealt to Chicago and, you know, find myself in Atlanta, then in Columbus. And then I go back to Detroit, injuries happen, lockout happens, a lot of things that were out of my control, but, you know, I was able to win a Stanley cup and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm proud of that. Um, and, you know, I know my family's proud of me and stuff. And I can always say that I was a, you know, a Stanley cup winner. Not many guys that can have, you know, some guys will play 20, 15 to 20 years and can say, Hey, I, I didn't win a Stanley cup, but uh, you know, I was very fortunate and I know I was fortunate and I played a small role, but I was there and I, you know, I know, the whole, you know, how the, the road goes and things like that. And it's, it's a bumpy one, but, you know, to be able to learn from those Hall of Famers and those players, like our fourth line was Igor Larionov, Thomas Holmstrom, and Luke Robitaille. So you have two guys that are Hall of Famers on that team. That was our fourth line, right? So, like, that was a tough lineup to crack. But I was the guy that was next. I was – if anybody got injured – I was going in there and even the last Stanley cup game, Yuri Fisher cross-checked a player in the face 
and got a game suspension, they were considering putting me in the lineup and moving Sergei Fedorov back on the, on the blue line. But they ended up putting Yuri Slager in, kept Sergei up front. Yuri Slager played an unbelievable game, played great. Um, and that was, that was it. That was, you know, game, it was, yeah, game five against Carolina at home. And, or, yeah, game one, two, three, yeah, game five. Yep. So we won again at home, one in Detroit. That was, that was crazy. Being so close to home. And then Carolina happened to beat Toronto that year in the semifinals. I was like praying. I was like, please don't be the least. Please don't be the least because there was a lot of people praying for that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Win or lose. I would not li- like live it down. Like if we would have won, people would have hated me because I was on Detroit. And if we would have lost to the Leafs, then I would have never heard the end of it. <laughs> Listen, we only got a minute left, so I want to be really quick, but I have to ask you, and I hate to do it to you, so I apologize already. <laughs> but I mean, I think in 2005, Mike Babcock took over uh, the Detroit Red Wings. He played a couple of years underneath him. Uh, being near Toronto, we like the fall from grace has been has been quick. And I just want to get your opinion on what it was like to play under him. In my opinion, you, you have to be tough to be a coach sometimes, and maybe players don't like that. But I just want to know from your side what he was like as a coach. Yeah, no, um, I had Mike Babcock my first year in Cincinnati. Um, so I knew how he was, like, his first year pro. So, like, I started with him the first two years. So he saw me as being a you know, younger guy coming up and maybe up and coming. And he did a lot for my game. He helped me understand how the game was played, what needed to be do or done. And then the biggest thing was like, you come out of junior and you're kind of like the, the big dog in junior. And then you start playing pro hockey and you see how the pros practice every single day. And it is an eye opener. You think you work hard, but you don't. Not even remotely close to what pros work. So he made me understand how I needed to practice to be successful. So he helped me out in that area. Um, You know, he definitely helped me understand where the game was going. I think that technical X's and O's, he's very, very smart. He's very good at getting the team that he has to play a certain way that's going to get him victories and get the team victories. So for instance, he's in Anaheim. He rides the coattails of a spectacular goaltending performance by uh, Jagir to get them to the finals and they lose to uh, New Jersey. And then, you know, he comes to Detroit. Now he's faced with a different set of set of cards here. Now he's got, some talented players he's got Nick Lindstrom. He's got Chris Chelios. He's got Pavel Datsuk. He got Zen- Henrik Zetterberg. And it, now he's got some really core pieces to the puzzle. And system wise, things never changed very much. It was kind of the same systems as that we were playing in Cincinnati. And, you know, like I say, X's and O's, really good that way. But where I felt when he got to the NHL was his, his, his ability to communicate to his players. He would ride guys, and if you got on his bad side, you, never saw, you, you could never dig yourself out of it. And that was unfortunate because 
you know, it almost came down to like where I felt like he'd come up to me and ask me, you know, how are things going? But he really didn't care. So why are you asking me? Are you just asking me to make yourself feel better about it because you're making conversation with me? Because he didn't care what, what I was doing outside the game. All he cared about was what I was doing on the ice. So don't, for me, I wish he didn't have that, like that, like kind of conversations where it seemed like it was forced. And it seemed like, like I say, when we, when I would walk away from that conversation, I was like, he doesn't give it, he doesn't give a shit if he, or what I do. And he doesn't care what I do outside the game. And he made it try to look like he did care. But like I say, he didn't. And then when I got into those bad books, there was no digging my way out of it. And like what he did to some players, like Mike Medano, stuck on uh, 1,499 games. He had three games, I think, in the end of the year, three or four games at the end of the year to put him in to get him to 1,500, and he didn't. And then like he would be the first person to say, like he played Steve Eisenman seven to eight minutes one night. I've never seen Steve Eisenman get undressed so fast in my entire life. And I was like, wow. Like I just kind of sat back and was like, this is going to be bad. And the next, like Steve Eisenman never played under 15 minutes after. Like with one leg. Like I understand he was only on one leg. He had to basically, like his knee was done. But Mike Babcock never, ever embarrassed Steve Eisenman like that again. And that's the thing. Like, you have your stars and then you have your role players. You can get away with doing certain things with some of your star players that you, you know, that the, the role players, they're not going to get away with that. And I think that if you can be able to manage that and still everybody feel that they're part of the team, like, that's what I mean. No one, no one's ego was bigger. Like when I look at it, Scotty Bowman, he, he was never like, he didn't think that he was up here, but once Mike Babcock started winning, it was like, he was up here and everybody else was way down here. And that's how he treated and talked to you. He probably didn't realize it, but that's how I felt. I felt that he thought I was way down here. And then he was up here because he was having success. And he let that success kind of get to his head a little bit. So, you know, when I see Mike Babcock today, do I say hi to him? Yes. You know, I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to hold a grudge against him because he did a lot of good for my career as well. You know, he gave me a chance. He, you know, when I came back from the lockout year, because I played for him the previous year, he's like, hey, this guy can play the point in the power play. I got a chance to play the point in the power play with Nick Winston. And then... Knock on the door, Matthew Schneider goes in and says, Hey, listen, I've been come, I've been brought here to play on the power play. Start playing me on the power play. So Jason Williams gets pushed back down to the second power play unit, which, you know, it's fine, it happens. And Matthew Schneider starts having some success. But when you're playing with Nick Lindstrom and Pavel Datsuk and Henrik Zetterberg and, Nick, and, and Nicholas Kron or uh, uh, Thomas Holmstrom, you're going to have a pretty good power play. So you know, my job wasn't like, I was just basically pass the puck to Nick and let him dish it and or shoot it and, and it would either go in or he could set someone up. So it was very easy to do. But, you know, I was taken off that unit and then, 
you know, I, I was having success and then it was just kind of slowly kind of taken away from me step by step by step. And it was unfortunate, but you know, it is what it is. And I understood the whole veteran thing. And, you know, even though I wasn't a rookie, he had a lot more seniority than I did. And I'm not, you know, saying that he wasn't a good power play guy. He was a great power play guy, probably made her power play, maybe even better. Who knows? But when that stuff starts getting taken away from you, you see the behind the scenes stuff that probably shouldn't have happened, but it did. And, you know, there's nothing I can do about it, but, you know, like I say, he's, he, what I've told people and what I've kind of, my impression is, like I say, X's and O's, he's very good, but sometimes he can, he can treat people the wrong way and can rub people the wrong way. And I think that that's where, you know, he gets that a little bit of that arrogance with him, and it's, it just comes across the wrong way. I don't think he intentionally means to do it, but I just, I feel that it comes across the wrong way. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Cause that's what we hear from a lot of people is that he was a good coach, but if he got on his bad side, it was, it was kind of the end of the story. Anyways, Jason, listen, we're out of time, but we thank you for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and uh, we'll have to have you on again because I, I know we're, there's lots more to talk about. Uh, but once again, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate you having me guys. Have a good night. I'm Dave Middleton, a proud Sun Life Financial Advisor, and I've got some fantastic ideas for the money that's building up in your bank account due to COVID-19. Make more and protect more. Visit sunlife.ca slash dave.middleton. Goldline Curling is proud to support the Port Elgin Chrysler 2022 Ontario Tankard in Saugeen Shores. Powered by Bruce Power, February 9th through 13th at the Plex in Port Elgin. Goldline Curling, the choice of champions. You're listening to The Smitty and Mitty Show. All right, a big thank you to Jason Williams once again joining us here on The Smitty and Mitty Show, 2002 Stanley Cup champion. First guy we've had on the show that actually got to raise the cup on the ice, like skate around with it, had the skates on, skated with it. Like, that's big for us, Did he eh? skate with it? I think or? he did. Okay. I think we got the picture of him holding it. How about when uh, when shirtless producer Kev sent us the uh, the visuals <laughs> for the episode, and it was like the NBA player, Jason Williams. He's like, here's the uh, here's the poster for episode 47 with Jason Williams. There's this guy playing basketball. That's, I, don't I don't think, think he that's raised him. the Stanley Cup. We got in this argument about the Stanley Cup, too, in our, uh, yeah, in our group did. chat. And I, I, I'm right. There's you're, no way I'm not right. You're, you're right, but you're not right. Well, I'm definitely right. I, did. I said there is only two Stanley Cups. But there's you, not. There's three. There's but three. one of them is the Dominion Challenge Cup, and it is not the same. Like, it doesn't look the it's same. It's the original cup. Saying. Yeah, but what I was saying is that it doesn't look like the other two. But it's the original one. So if we're having that argument, then there's only one Stanley Cup. Sure. Just one. One original cup. The, the two it was the only wrong answer, two really. Imposter. Two was the absolute wrong answer. At least mine I could be an that answer. they looked the same. Oh, right. You could swap them out. You couldn't swap out the Dominion Cup with the other two and think it was the same one. They look the same in the fact that they're both frauds and look nothing like the original trophy, like the actual Stanley trophy. Stanley Presented by Lord... Do you know that Lord Stanley actually never presented the trophy? He never lived to see a he just Stanley Cup final. He just commissioned it to be made. He never... But he never actually lived long enough to see it and hand it out. No. Yeah, well, I read that. I read that. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, there you go. The, the things you learn when you're was arguing not, with someone. Was it, you're not, trying... was it not made fairly quickly? Or like... I I, I mean, you would think, what was it? The Because it would have been like the early 1900s. Yeah, or... so you think it would take a while to make, right? Even earlier, right? Because I think they were handing out and doing that kind of thing. But it was like a challenge thing. So like, if you won, 
everyone else would just come challenge you. They'd be like, we want the cup. Oh. Right? Like, that's how it started. Like a March Madness, but by... by No, like, totally renegade league, man. Like, like, so like, like a schoolyard like so school like, game. Ottawa had won the Stanley Cup. Okay, probably, now, prob- probably, <laughs> probably, it was probably the last time they won. Going the, way too far out there now. It was probably the last time they won the Stanley up. Cup back in like the twenties. Right. But this team, and I, I've read this story before. I think they were from up near like Nunavut. Okay. Spent two months on dog sleds and trains to come to Ottawa to challenge them to win the Stanley Cup and got blown out. There is the first so much in this story that is completely false. First of all, the Ottawa Senators are never champions. Never. I don't know if they've ever won. Like just well, by starting off saying the Ottawa Senators were champions, you're false right there. And now you're you're saying somebody from Nunavut has to ride dog sleds all the way down. It's true. Like you sound like someone from Texas when I was I had somebody in Texas once when I was playing baseball down there ask me when we ditched the dog sleds and <laughs> if we've ever seen grass like this before. Uh, like yes. That's what you just sounded like, but to, to Nunavutians. It was 100% true, man. I don't know if it was Nunavut. Somewhere up north. Somewhere up north where they had to take dog sleds on two months to get to Ottawa. Got blown out in the first game like 17-1. to 1, Came back. Was a lot closer in the second game, but still lost. It's tough to say it's 100% true and Ooh. then contradict yourself by saying, I don't know if it's true. Like, that's pretty, that's what no, you I just said, said I don't know if they're from Nunavut. So you don't know if it's 100% true. It's true. So Mike Babcock, we talked about him at the end there. Interesting, because I went to um, the Don Kowarski referee camp, right? Tons of former NHL referees there, current NHL referees at the time, too. And, you know, we had a Q&A, and one of the biggest questions, like, there was a bunch that were just, what was the big, what was the best rink to play at? What was, what was it like doing Hockey Night in Canada? What was it? Blah, 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 right? But one of them was, who was the worst coach to try and referee with? And it was syn- synonymously? Anonymously. Anonymously. Not anonymous, because that means <laughs> someone said it with synonymous. No, it's not synonymously. It's a- yeah. anonymously. No, it wasn't anonymously. What does it mean when all the... Pl- all <laughs> Synonymously. No, that's not right either. People are laughing yeah, listening to this right now. Whatever. It's not anonymous, because anonymous means like you don't know who it is. That's what anonymous means. But I just like, want... If the- I were to an- anonymously like went, go to your house and drop off stuff, you wouldn't know it was me. Okay. That's what anonymous <laughs> is. <laughs> If it was a pizza, I'd know it was you. And the one with the two slices missing. But okay, this pizza's so, half gone. Okay, uh, let me rephrase. All of the yes. officials said the same name. That was Mike Babcock. Collectively, and they said it was he would call the like Dion Phaneuf would come over and say Babs wants to talk to you, and they'd skate over to the bench and they'd say Babs, which what's up? And he would just look at them and walk away. And then the assistant coach would come over and say he just wants you to know that he makes five million dollars a year and he's better than you. And that was it. And he would never talk to the officials, ever. Mm-hmm. It was on Dion. It was on Phil to talk to the officials. It was never on Babcock. Like, that's just the guy. It seems like everyone knew that he was a dickhole, but nobody wanted to address it because he had won Stanley Cups and he had well, won gold thing, medals. That's the right? That's the, and I think that's how he kept getting jobs, right? Everyone knew the problem with Mike Babcock. Everyone knew, whether it was rumors that they've witnessed it firsthand, they knew that his coaching style, that's what it was. And he knew that he was better than everyone else. And winning the Stanley Cups in Detroit is what kind of just pushed that past the edge. Like, now he knows he can do it. He knows he's good at it. I think he was handed pretty good teams, to be honest with you. And I I think there's tons of other coaches that could have done what he did. I do think he's a smart hockey man. Like, he does know the game. He does... He is able to coach. He just wants... He wants the game to be about him. And... Like Jason Spezza makes his is coming 
to make his home opener appearance in Toronto in his hometown. And he said something, right? It just had to be Benches about him. Babs. If it wasn't about Babs, he had to make sure it was about him. Yeah. And that's a problem, especially when you have veteran, I think the veteran players. Like you think about all the veterans they had in Detroit. Mm-hmm. That would be the main problems because the young guys don't know any better. The veterans, they say, no, you're not treating me like this. I know who I am. Yeah. I'm way more important to this team than you are. Yeah. So figure this out. Yeah. See, I actually do make more money than you. So yeah, shove it. <laughs> yeah. So the Toronto Blue Jays <laughs> are uh, are coming home. They're coming home. They're coming home. Tell the world I'm coming home. That was beautiful. That was gorgeous. Oh, we're, we're done. Okay. That was gorgeous. <laughs> Clip that. <laughs> July 30th? 30th, yeah. 30th, they're coming home. A homestand with Kansas City. Looked up how much tickets are. Too much? Got to take out a little. $330 for uh, 19th row in the 500 level. I read that they are allowing 15,000 fans, which yep. is about 25% approximately. Correct. Why? And I also read that they are treating it like an outdoor venue to allow for those fans. So well, should it, they're probably allowed to get a higher number with the outdoor venue. But it's higher than 25%. No, like why? Well, I don't. It's not. I don't get it. The Ontario government, even when they announced um, that sports leagues can start and even some of the other sports leagues in Canada... Outdoor sports, like baseball, can have up to 75% capacity now in stage three. Right. Up to 15,000 people. But how does that make any sense? I'm not saying it does. I'm just saying, like, obviously, that's where they're getting that number from. The reason you're allowed 75% of people is so that you can still allow for space for some kind and of... also, 15,000 is a lot closer to 33% of that place. It only sits about 46 so why, I, I just don't get when there's 46,000 seats and you can spread people out if you have, let's throw it a number, 30,000 fans, mm-hmm. double the 15, right? You can still allow for spacing. Like there's there's spacing at Toronto Blue Jays games midweek all the time. All the time there was spacing within the seats. So why why is it capped at the 15? And I think we've talked, did we talk about the capacity at Salem Field? What was the number? Do you remember? Like I think they're beating that at 15. Correct? Yeah, I think it was 16 something. I think they're close to it, if not beating it. In Toronto at 15, but those ticket prices, man, like they're going to sell tickets for 10 times what they're going right. to sell them for in Buffalo. Well, for a little bit. Eventually, it's going to have to go down. Otherwise, I don't think really? you're going to get people there. You're only getting a certain amount of home games this year. And eventually, you're going to get into playoff race, hopefully. August and September. The next question is what happens if we you know, get to the fall, our vaccination numbers don't get to where we need it to be, and our numbers start to climb a little bit more. What are they going to do? Are they going to kick them out? Are they going to let them finish the season? What are we? You've got to think they're... Letting them finish now that they're in, right? You would hope so. But on top of that, too, non-vaccinated players coming into Canada are subjected to Stricter quarantine, modified yeah. quarantine. So they're just not allowed to mingle within the community. They have to go to a hotel to the field. Can't leave the hotel. Got to eat at the hotel. They're, it's very much like the um, like the NHL when it came in. Almost bubble-like for those guys who aren't vaccinated. And, and so we've learned over the MLB in the last few weeks that there's still a lot of guys, some big names... That aren't vaccinated. Well, look at the New York Yankees, what they're going through right now. Game canceled because guys like Aaron Judge and... Uh, Which room? They, I can't think of the catcher's name. I don't know why I can't think of the catcher's name. Sanchez. Ha- no. Hachiyama. Oh. Yeah. It was a Japanese name. Oh, okay. Yeah. Whatever not not the Sanchez. Well, the guys who are okay. who are testing positive who clearly have not been vaccinated. So my question is, where do you think there's going to be any players who do not make the trip to Toronto because they feel like it's infringing on their freedoms, quote unquote? There will be. It's going to be, you won't see it on teams that are in a playoff race. I don't think. 
right? You won't see it on teams that are in a playoff race. But I think you'll see teams and players that when they come to town, be it a three-game series, they might just skip the weekend, right? Are you going to see guys like we know that Stephen Matz, for example, is not vaccinated because he spent time on the COVID list. So we know that he is not vaccinated. Is he going to demand a trade rather than come home and, and spend a two-week you know, homestand in Toronto where he P- can only go on from the, the field? Is is he gonna is he gonna demand to be sent out of Toronto? Is there, there's gonna be something he that's might, gonna happen he here. There's gonna be, be some to, kind of this is just my brain. He might be able to do stay in Buffalo, work out in Buffalo. Like let's say the Jays are home for two weeks. But why would you stay let, there I, and then come to Toronto to pitch? Get out. I think if I was the Toronto Blue Jays front office, I wouldn't allow that. No. If you're with the team, you're with the team. If not, We'll keep your money. Maybe it, it, it might get more guys to get vaccinated, though, eh? You that, that would that, be your hope, but I, they're American. We'll see. For the most part, like they, they, you can't force them to get. I don't think you can force anyone to. And hey, this show is very much pro vaccination. Go get your vaccinations. Oh, Let's get out of this. Oh, Let's stay healthy. Let's yeah. move on. But there are certain people who believe it is against their freedoms to force them into getting vaccinated. And I agree with that. You can't force somebody. You can educate them, mm-hmm. but you can't physically force them. Now, it is the MLB's right. It is the Rogers Center's right. Yeah. It is Canada's right to say, if you are not vaccinated, these are the rules for you. You have the decision to make. You don't have to get vaccinated, but these are your rules because you're not. Quickly here, before we move on to Conor McGregor, what is the top dollar you would pay to go see a Jays game this summer? Ooh, who am I going with? Per ticket. Me and you. Two tickets. You and me. Two fifty, two two fifty. I think I would do two fifty for one game. We're not going to multiple. Oh God! If it's two fifty, yeah. that's it for the summer. And we're we're flasking in the parking lot to get our drinks. <laughs> we're not buying the fourteen dollar <laughs> beer for sure. But uh, yeah, I, I would buy two fifty for for one game. I would do that. Depends on who they're playing. Well, I, I don't think you're going to get a ticket for two fifty if they're playing the Yankees or the Red Sox. Like that's only the Kansas City Royals that you're going to get those ticket prices. I think I'd rather go see the Kansas City Royals. More chance the Jays are going to win. They've beaten the Yankees plenty of times this year. Beaten the Royals plenty of times, I think. Yeah, actually, well, I think they no, struggled think against the Royals a little they? bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Conor McGregor. I'm doing. I'm the one doing all the move-ons today. I'm the one. Well, I said us. quickly before we move on. So that's and, like. But your, I'm doing the move. Yeah, but that's your key. The Conor to McGregor. Move, move the hell. Poirier three on the weekend. I was sitting up feeding my little baby, and I thought, you know what? I should watch this. So I watched a lot of the fights, ending in the McGregor fight. We are now finding out that McGregor, his camp is saying that he broke or he had a hairline fracture in his, uh, in his calf or in his what bones in his leg. Fibula? No, that's the upper one. No, no, the fibula. Oh, good fibula? for you. Yeah. Yeah, good for you. So he, he had a hairline <laughs> fracture going into the fight, and they were having discussions whether he would back out or not. But but why? This is a, a streak of losses. I think his reputation and his legacy has been greatly affected by this. So why did he decide to fight? Well, we talked a little bit before, and I think it's just the competitiveness in him, right? Like, you, if you get a guy like that who is so driven, it's going to be so tough to pull him out, out of that, out you of that know, fight. No, do you remember after the last Poirier fight and how he was walking around with all those leg kicks, right? He knew he was going to get kicked in the leg. And Poirier, as soon as he kicked him for the first time, he looked at him, he pointed at him and said, I, like, I know that hurts. Yeah. I'm going there. I know that hurts. So, like, you can't think that it's not, like, it's going to break. Yeah, it it's was pretty bound. easy. It was bound. Is he done? Is he done? I, I think it, we talked about this on yeah, the radio. We talked about it on the radio. I hate to say this. I really do. But I think the only 
way he is going to fight again is in the boxing world and probably in the Triller fights. I think the best chance you can see from him is Mayweather-McGregor too. And I actually think Mayweather would take that a little bit more seriously than he did his last his, fight. His career in the MMA is done, though. I, th- I believe so. I'd, at least, because at, who's least fight at, at least at the level he was at. No doubt. I, I don't think anyone... This is tough, because I don't think anyone in the upper echelon is going to fight him, because he's just not... He's not, not the fighter he used, used to, to be. be. And I don't think McGregor is going to fight anything, anyone in the lower tilt just to get a win under his belt yeah. because it means nothing to him. No. The only way we're going to see another fight is if, you know, like, listen, the purses are huge, yeah. right? They're making money. So if you're doing it for solely for money, then, yeah, we're going to see another one of these. But if you're doing it for the love of the sport, I just don't know who's going to fight him at this point. Well, and as much as his, uh, we've talked about how McGregor's been on the decline, he's, he's still got a huge brand, man. He's not gonna. He's not gonna risk he's got that. Vodka. By, he's got a lot of things going from. He's, he's, he's not. He's, he's not gonna risk that by going to fight some nobody and risk losing because that that is something that could. What we did lose for sure. We we lost any chance we had at a Khabib and McGregor fight. There's no way that he that Khabib is gonna come back and God, no. yeah and fight him for for what for no reason. I would right? be shocked. No, be I didn't shocked. think it was gonna happen anyways. But I really don't think it's gonna happen now. No, I, I would be completely shocked if we saw. And like you said, I think his career is gonna move on to. What we're seeing now is actually, I don't want to say it's getting big, but those celebrity fights, right? Like those, I, I, that's starting to become a thing in the fighting world. You know, you know, I hate it. You know, I hate I these. I don't like it. I think, I don't know. I think McGregor would treat it the way it should be treated. I don't think he would go in. Like you knew in the Mayweather fight that he, him, Mayweather and McGregor, like they were trying to play evil, but you knew they were in it to make money. Mm-hmm. But they still put up a really, really, really good boxing match, right? So I think McGregor, even if he fights a Paul brother, I think he's at least going to go into it with this passion that he doesn't want to get shown up again. Well, like I said, he's a competitor. Yeah, so he's, he's gonna, at least going to treat it. Yeah. It's not going to be what Mayweather just did where you could tell, and he told you that he didn't care. He was just there for the money. He didn't care about the fight. No, I think no. at least McGregor's going to care to try and win a fight, and... Hell, I'd watch it. I would buy that fight. How much would you pay for McGregor fight? A McGregor who? Mayweather. McGregor Mayweather. I'd pay the fifty dollar pay per view pretty yeah. easily. We could split it this. Yeah, time. we we would have. Listen, we're allowed indoor gathering. We're vaccinated, we're, right? We're vaccinated. You can Get come over. Vaccine. Hold the baby. You look so scared. Last is the first time you're shitless, <laughs> man. Holy cow. She's little. She's tiny. She's a little little girl, and you just look like you didn't want to break a porcelain mm-hmm. doll. Yeah, this is fun. Yeah, this is great. No, no, don't know how people sit there and enjoy it, man. I honestly don't. I'd enjoy. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I appreciate <laughs> nobody could enjoy my daughter. No, thank no, you. no, no. I'm just scared shitless. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so anybody show that's gonna wrap it up for another week because you got to get down to the field to call the majors game today. So uh, I'll be watching on the YouTube's. I the think that's YouTubes, where it is, right? Yep, it's not the Rogers today. It's the nope. YouTube's. So you got to get down there. Smitty Mitty Show. We'd like to thank uh, our shirtless producer Kev. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Dave Middleton Sun Life Financial, Life's Brighter Under the Sun, Gold Line Curling, the choice of champions. That does it for us. Follow us on the Smitty and Mitty Show social medias, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Smitty Mitty Show on the YouTube. How many weeks in a row have we promised that we're going to put the interviews up on YouTube? I haven't promised anything. You make so many <laughs> empty promises. So many empty promises. The studio is not done yet. It's done. Nothing is up on it's YouTube. Done. It's done. It's not done. The walls are There's up. nothing on the wall. Listen, does this sound done? Smitty Mini Show, thanks for this. Thank you for listening this week on the Smitty and Mitty Show. Big thanks to Jason Williams for hopping on and joining us this week, 2002 Stanley Cup champion. You can watch him um, hopefully up on the YouTube page very soon. Thanks for listening this week, and we'll see you next week here on the Smitty and Mitty Show.